Alrighty, hello, hello. Um, today I'm going to be talking about the Patho Farm Lecture from May 21st. So this first section is on allergic response. So in allergies, um, they kind of primarily result from the actions of basophils and mast cells, which are going to be primed and activated by antibodies in the presence of an allergen, which we'll get to a little later. So the main components, when they are activated and they are degranulated, we're going to have the release of histamine, which we'll talk about a lot later as well, but it results in a lot of things happening in the body. You're going to see vasodilation of blood vessels and increased vascular permeability. There's also going to be increased mucus secretion, bronchoconstriction, um, and also it will affect your sleep and waking cycles and could, could create seizure suppression as well. We'll also have the release of arachidonic acid, which can be metabolized in a couple different pathways, which we'll discuss later, but it causes the release of leukotrienes, which contribute to vascular permeability and shock, and also prostaglandins, for, which affect itching and pain. So coming back to this histamine, it's responsible for the primary allergy symptoms. So if you think of someone having either like an acute allergic reaction or seasonal allergies, it's likely due to a lot of the effects of histamine. So we'll once again have that vasodilation of small blood vessels. So you're going to have the engorgement of tissue with leaky vessels, those um, incre uh, increased capillary permeability, which is going to lead to tissue edema and angioedema which are some of the cardinal signs of an allergic reaction. We'll also have bronchoconstriction, which could lead to wheezing, shortness of breath, coughing, and increased secretions. And finally, those central nervous system effects, like changes to your sleep and wake cycles, itching, pain, and seizure suppression. As histamine causes vasodilation, it also causes turbinates and nasal glucosa of the nose to become congested. So this causes that sensation of congestion in patients. You also have increased capillary permeability, which causes edema in your um, nasal turbinates. Some other cardinal symptoms of, um, symptoms of this, you'll have a transverse nasal crease, kind of an allergic salute, and also allergic shiners as a result of histamine. You'll also see that swelling in your bronchioles and bronchoconstriction. So moving into the drugs for this, antihistamines are the first line defenses against allergic reactions. They are histamine antagonists, so they're gonna block the histamine receptors and decrease the allergic response. Unfortunately, they don't decrease congestion since it's caused by vasodilation directly. Um, histamine also has a number of impacts, which we'll discuss. So we have this first generation of H1 histamine agonists, antagonists, excuse me. So the most common is diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl. So once again, blocking those histamine receptors. It has a number of peripheral effects, so it's going to reduce flushing, edema, mucus secretions, itching, and pain. But it also has effects on the central nervous system. So in normal doses, it's going to be highly sedating. It's going to make you really, really sleepy. So they actually often use it as a sleep aid. If you have a large overdose, so you're at a toxic level of it, it'll actually result in paradoxical effects. So you'll have central nervous system stimulation, which could be seizures, pupil dilation, tachycardia, and hyperpyrexia. 
So it's important to be extremely, extremely careful when you're administering large doses via IV because that can have really damaging effects. So because of that sedation and those side effects, um, a second generation of antihistamines were developed. So they all block histamine with the same relief from allergic symptoms, but with fewer central nervous system effects and a minimal sedative effect. So the reason why for this, these decreased central nervous system side effects, the drugs have relatively large molecules with low solubility, so they have a lot of difficulty crossing the blood-brain barrier. They also have a, there's a low affinity to histamine receptors in the brain, which kind of leads to these, these decreased side effects and um, decreased sedative effects. They're also long-acting, so they last for a long time, greater than 24 hours, and can be taken once a day, which is a huge benefit if we think about ease of administration. So while diphenhydramine, Benadryl, works better for allergic symptoms, the side effects of sedation in a short half-life make it potentially a worse option than these second-generation drugs. So these drugs include loratadine, fexofenadine, cetirizine, <laughs> and levocetirizine. So once again, blocking the histamine effect receptors, the peripheral effects, once again, reducing flushing, edema, mucus secretion, itching, and pain, just like first-generation antihistamines, but the main difference is that the central nervous system affects very few, if any, and it's long-acting. We also have another form of antihistamine, um, azelastine or estelin. This is a topical administration via nasal spray, and it's going to block the histamine response locally. So there are minimal systemic side effects. While there are the few that occur could be drowsiness and throat irritation, and reportedly there's a horrible taste, but it's going to be a more local effect. Just a little tip for administering, administering nasal sprays. Um, you want to use the opposite hand per nostril, so if possible, it tips towards the sides and can enter the sinus cavity rather than towards the septum. So counterintuitively, you'd recommend that the patient stand and hold their head down, which can sometimes decrease that bitter taste. The next section is inflammation and tissue repair. So what is inflammation? Inflammation is an automatic response to cellular injury. So this could occur as a result of ischemia, immune response, trauma, anything like that. It has a number of purposes, including neutralizing harmful agents, removing dead tissue, generating new tissue, and initiating repair. So it all starts with tissue damage, which is going to result in the release of vasoactive and chemotactic factors, which will lead to um, pain, vasodilation, which increases heat and redness, um, also increased permeability, which relates to that swelling and redness that you'll see, and also, also neutrophil immigration. So we'll have kind of those cardinal signs of inflammation, pain, heat, redness, swelling, and loss of function. Generally speaking, inflammation is an incredibly important process. It allows vascularized tissues to heal more quickly. Very important. So some of the important components, when you have that initial energy, you're going to have cytokines, which facilitate the communication between cells. You'll also see the migration of white blood cells, such as neutrophils and macrophages that respond very early, and the release of mediators. So you'll have the Increased capillary permeability, fluid and plasma proteins are entering the area, and you'll have resulting edema. 
So some of our important inflammatory mediators, like we talked about, they're released and are really key in this process. While you have everything initiating because of an injury, the signs and symptoms are produced by chemical mediators, which can either originate from plasma or the cells. So we have histamine, which is released by mast cells and widely distributed in tissues very early on during acute inflammatory reactions. That will cause the vasodilation of arterioles and also increase permeability of venules. We have cytokines like that once again um, allow the communication between cells and modulate the function of other cells. We have arachidonic acid metabolites. Um, arachidonic acid is produced from phospholipids of the cell membrane and metabolized into eicosanoids, I don't know how to say that, which are also known as prostaglandins and leukotrienes. So finally, we have the platelet activating factor, which activates neutrophils and initiates platelet aggregation, and also the plasma-derived proteins, such as coagulation factors, complement proteins, and kinins. So two major, major inflammatory mediators are interleukin-1 and tumor necrosis factor alpha. So the bacteria or the T cells tell the white blood cells to release these mediators. And the function of that is to kind of set off events that help neutralize the invader. So the endothelial cells are going to activate adhesion molecules so the white blood cells can enter the area. Then cytokines will be released to call cells to area and eicosanoids, eicosanoids are metabolized. Also you have the chemo kinins, and free radicals, which will help the fight. We also have the neutrophils, which will be primed so they can adhere to the epithelial wall, and, or the endothelial wall, excuse me, and enter tissue, and the acute phase response, which results in the signs and symptoms that we know of inflammation, like fever, anorexia, hypotension, and increased heart rate, and that will all be much discussed soon. So with that increased capillary permeability that you're going to see, it typically that increased vascular permeability is going to exist in those capillary beds like we talked about. Um, generally speaking, in normal healthy states, the space between the cells is extremely small, so really only fluid is able to exit. And a good visual of this film lecture is if you picture it as a screen, you're always going to be able to pour water through it and it'll pass through without problems. But if you threw a big pile of sand on it, it would not get through the screen well. So by opening the size of those spaces within the screen, it's going to allow it to pass. So opening the spaces allows cells to, to leave the vasculature. Now I'm going to dive into the complement process a little bit. So the complement cascade is a series of 20 plasma proteins that promote and enhance immune and inflammatory functions. And these are going to be activated by either an antigen or the metabolic functions of bacteria. So there are a few important processes here. We're going to start with opsonization in which the bacteria will be coded to mark it as an invader. So it's going to be clearly marked as foreign. Then we have chemotaxis in which cytokines are released to attract immune and inflammatory cells. Finally, the last step in the process is the cell membrane attack complex, also abbreviated as MAC. It's going to result in the um, destruction of the cell. So effectively how this works is that the, this MAC, the membrane attack complex, is going to form a circle in the invader, so in the foreign cell, and it's going to allow water and sodium to be osmotically pulled into the bacteria.
which will then lead to the lysis of that bacteria and death. So my next point is about the metabolism of arachidonic acid. So as we know, it's a substance metabolized from the phospholipids of the cell membrane in injured cells. So there are two pathways it can take. It can go down the lipooxygenase pathway or the cyclooxygenase pathway. So starting with the lipooxygenase pathway, this is going to give rise to leukotrienes. So think lipooxygenase, leukotrienes. So the function of leukotrienes, they're going to induce smooth muscle contraction, constrict pulmonary airways, increase vascular permeability, and probably what they're most known for, prolong the allergic response. We also have cyclooxygenase pathway, which will give rise to thromboxane A2 and prostaglandins. Thromboxane A2 promotes platelet function and aggregation, also vasoconstriction and bronchoconstriction. On the other hand, prostaglandins induce vasodilation, bronchoconstriction, inhibit inflammatory cell function, and cause the sensation of pain, <clears throat> which is how they're kind of most known. Other inflammatory mediators involve nitric oxide, which is a vascular smooth muscle relaxant. It also regulates leukocyte recruitment and aids in phagocytic killing of microbes. Oxygen-free radicals are also released in small amounts locally, um, released from cells like leukocytes or the endothelium. They can combine with nitrous oxide to form reactive mediators that increase inflammatory processes and cause tissue injury. They might also increase cytokine expression, aid in neutrophil action, and amplify the inflammatory process. So there are two basic patterns of inflammation. We're going to have acute inflammation. So this is going to be of a short duration and it's a non-specific early response to injury and self-limited. So you're gonna see this for a short period of time and then it's gonna take care of itself and get on out. It's aimed primarily at removing the injurious agent and limiting tissue damage. So you'll see the infiltration of neutrophils and lots of exudate which I think of as kind of the, the carnage from the inflammation process. You can also have chronic inflammation, which is a long duration of inflammation that lasts days to years. It's a progressive inflammatory process that, in which you see the infiltration of macrophages and lymphocytes with the proliferation of fibroblasts. So acute, we have neutrophils, chronic, we have macrophages and lymphocytes. So going through the stages of acute inflammation, first we'll have the vascular stage. This involves a very brief initial constriction followed by vasodilation. So the arterioles and the venules are going to dilate, which increases blood flow to the injured area. This is when you kind of see that trademark redness and warmth of infections. You'll also see leaky capillaries, so they're going to become more permeable and allow exudate to escape into the tissues. This results in swelling and pain. And the mediator that's responsible for prolonging the process is going to be those leukotrienes. So also in this stage, we're going to see the area becoming congested, as we talked about with fluid. So we'll have the redness, the warmth, all of that. And when the cells of the capillary beds are opening and liquids and cells are entering the tissue, we're going to see increased hydrostatic pressure, which is kind of the force generated by the pressure of fluid. And that could be inside or outside the capillary, on the capillary wall. 
So it'll be the pushing pressure from all the fluid in the tissue with that increased blood flow. We'll also see decreased colloidal osmotic pressure since as the immune cells move from the blood into the tissue, they're pulling water from vasculature into the tissue as well. So that's a pulling pressure. We also have different, <coughs> it'll also result in different kinds of exudate, which is the fluid that develops in the tissue. So first we have serous exudate, which is watery, low in protein, and basically plasma fluid that enters the inflammatory site. There's also hemorrhagic exudate, which is the leakage of blood from capillaries. Fibrinous exudate, which is thick and sticky and contains a large amount of fibrinogen. Um, we have membranous exudate, which is necrotic tissue, usually on mucous membrane surfaces. And finally, purulent exudate, which contains pus, so kind of those broken down white blood cells, protein, and tissue debris. So moving on to the next stage of acute inflammation, the cellular stage. So we've got all of this um, body fluid in your tissues. We've got those dilation of capillaries, leaky capillaries. So the white blood cells now are ready to enter the injured tissue. So they have a couple goals. They're going to destroy infective organisms, remove damaged cells, and also release more inflammatory mediators to control further inflammation and healing. So the white blood cells that you'll see at this point are granulocytes, um, which include neutrophils, which function as phagocytes, eosinophils, which are functioning mostly in parasitic infections, and also basophils and mast cells, which will release histamine like they do in allergic reactions. We also have the monocytes, which involve macrophages. <coughs> Excuse me. So yes, those monocytes in the bloodstream, once they're entering the tissue, they'll turn into macrophages. So as the body's responding to inflammation, you're going to see an increase in white blood cells to the area. So one would send a blood sample to the lab, and the lab is going to give percentages of the type of cells that the person is producing, which might be able to allow identification of the specific organism the patient is infected with. It'll also indicate whether or not the patient's producing appropriate white blood cells with the increased inflammatory response. One really important part of this, we have neutrophils, which as we know, they are the first responders to inflammation, so we pay special attention to them. We have the count of both neutrophils and bands. So bands are immature neutrophils. Um, typically, they're below 10%, and when they're above 10%, we know that the body is demanding neutrophils faster than the bone marrow is able to replace them with mature ones. And neutrophils have a lifespan of about 10 hours, so they're constantly being replaced, and it's a pretty effective um, timely indicator of inflammation. So this process generally works. The myeloid stem cells are going to receive a signal and cause maturation and release of neutrophils. The band neutrophils are named because the nucleus in, is in one band. So if you're kind of visualizing that, I think it's really helpful. Whereas with mature neutrophils, um, the nucleus is in segments. So about three to five segments instead of that one band. Baby band. <laughs> So usually in a healthy state, you'd only have mature neutrophils released 
by bone marrow into the blood. But with infection, the bone marrow is releasing immature bands. So if you have more than 10% bands, it's called a shift to the left. If neutrophils are elevated but bands aren't, it would be a shift to the right, which would be less concerning because you know that the body is able to compensate and um, maintain its production methods even with the infection. So the next step of this in our acute inflammation, we have leukocyte activation and phagocytosis. So this is when we have the migration of neutrophils to the tissue, which occurs in phases. <coughs> so usually white blood cells travel in the center of the bloodstream because they're pretty sizable. So our first step of this is margination. When the leukocytes begin to accumulate towards the wall and start to adhere to the endothelium. So the endothelium is releasing selectins and the cells are releasing integrins that allow them to roll on the endothelium until they form a tight bond and that results in adhesion. At this point, the leukocytes transmigrate, so the stage is transmigration across the endothelium and into the tissue. Next we have chemotaxis, so they're following the signals to where the invader is and then calling out other inflammatory mediators to join them in this area. And finally, we have activation and phagocytosis, so they phagocytize the invader or foreign tissue. So some systemic manifestations of inflammation. We have the acute phase response. So this is when the leukocytes are releasing mediators, which involve, as we talked about, those interleukins and the tumor necrosis factor. This is going to promote the inflammatory response and also have other effects. So it'll affect the thermoregulatory center, which causes a fever. It'll affect the central nervous system, which will cause lethargy. Um, we're gonna have skeletal muscle breakdown. Um, so you're having, you're trying to free up those amino acids so they can circulate and provide resources for your body. So that'll cause a negative nitro nitrogen balance because it's that um, catabolism like we talked about. We'll also have increased white blood cells and an increased erythrocyte sedimentation rate. So you might be wondering, what's the erythrocyte sedimentation rate? It is effectively how fast the red blood cells in your blood fall. Um, it's measured in millimeters per hour. So it's actually a measure of the inflammatory process, which I find really interesting. Um, generally speaking, the more inflammatory mediators there are in the blood, the easier it is for erythrocytes to stick together, which makes them heavier and they fall faster. So to perform this, you're going to have anticoagulated blood that's placed in a Westergren tube and you'll measure the rate they fall at in millimeters per hour. So if the sed rate is elevated, it's going to indicate inflammation. And it's not a specific test, so it's not gonna tell you what's causing the inflammation. It could be after surgery, it could be an infection, any of the above, but it will show you that there is some kind of inflammation happening. Another systemic manifestation of the acute phase response is the liver, which increases the production of acute phase proteins. So we'll see fibrinogen, which facilitates clotting. Also increased C-reactive proteins. And these are responsible, these generally happen when the inflammatory process is occurring and the liver is trying to control inflammation. So these C-reactive proteins bind to pathogens and mark them for destruction, so they're a way of moderating the inflammatory response and they neutralize them to keep it local. And the fibrinogen is to facilitate clotting. 
So now we have chronic inflammation, which is obviously very different than acute inflammation. As we talked about, this could be going on for years at a time, potentially. So it's basically a self-perpetuating low-grade inflammation, which could be an infection, autoimmune process, a foreign body, anything like that. And it's usually nonspecific inflammation. You're going to see the persistent presence of macrophages and lymphocytes and ongoing chemotaxis. Also, the fibroblast proliferation that would lead to scar tissue. You'll also have the granulomatous inflammation in which the foreign body is surrounded by macrophages that morph into a giant cell that encapsulates the object, like a splinter or a mycobacterium. So an example of this is what we think of as abscesses. So in stage one, we're going to have inflammation. So you'll see redness, warmth, swelling, pain due to the capillary dilation and the pressure, fluid buildup in tissue, exudation of fluid, and neutrophil migration. In stage two, it's called suppuration. Um, you'll have purulent exudate, so which contains the tissue debris, white blood cells, and other things that begin to form with a patch of tissue necrosis at the center. And finally, in abscess formation, you have stage three, where you have this walling off of an area of purulent exudate that forms the abscess. So now that we've caused all this damage from our inflammation, um, tissue repair is also a part of the inflammatory process. So tissue regeneration, very important. So we start with granulation tissue, which is angiogenesis, effectively the process of sprouting new capillaries from existing ones. So it's going to lead to a bright red granulated appearance, which while it looks a little concerning, it's a positive thing. It's showing that you have the growth of good, healthy tissue and good, healthy blood vessels. You'll also have activated fibroblasts that are producing the growth factors for angiogenesis, also fibronectin and hyaluronic acid, which is initially deposited on the wound. Um, proteoglycans will produce hydrophilic, um, that are hydrophilic and create an edematous appearance, and also collagen, which provides structure for the new tissue. That fibronectin is responsible for cell adhesion and hyaluronic acid is really important for cell proliferation and migration. While the proteoglycans produce mucus and the collagen provides that structure once again. So there are a couple ways that, a few ways that tissue can heal. We have primary intention in which um, there's just like a little slice in the skin. There's no tissue lost. You can sew it back together and the wound heals. So the edges are well approximated. You also have secondary in which there is a loss of tissue. And so it's going to have to be filled in by the body. Finally, tertiary is generally when you have a slice in the skin, it's sewn up and it becomes infected or the wound dehisses, which is opens and separates. So healing is going to occur on the wound margins and allow granulation tissue to be developed. So this is usually when you, it's originally primary, it got infected and granulation tissue grew. So now it's tertiary. So there are three phases of wound healing. We have inflammatory, in which fibrin is collected into the area to clot. You have increased capillary permeability, and that allows neutrophil entry. We also have the proliferation phase of wound healing. Um, here, fibroblasts are going to be synthesizing and creating collagen to provide that structure, and also releasing growth, the growth factors to help with angiogenesis and the epithelial cell proliferation to build new tissue to fill in that wound space.
Finally, we have contraction and the remodeling phase. Um, at this point, collagenase is going to reduce the size of the scar by breaking down collagen, and fibroblasts are going to produce more collagen to increase strength. Alrighty, that's all for this section. Okay, so moving on to the systemic inflammatory response syndrome. As you know, the inflammatory process is a really important and appropriate way to fight foreign infection and cell injury. However, when the inflammatory process becomes excessive and inappropriate, response is exaggerated and responds systematically inappropriately. So this results in systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which is a life-threatening condition. So you could see this with a number of things, such as a large infection, certain inflammatory diseases, burns, neoplasias, etc. So this is effectively when the inflammatory response goes systemic. So you're going to see widespread diffuse vasodilation, increased vascular permeability, and maldistribution of fluids caused by large amounts of fluid seeping into tissues. So this would result in a lack of appropriate fluid in the vascular space, which is going to decrease blood pressure. So as you can kind of see this connection, so we also have, we have the chronic activation of inflammation mechanisms, hypermetabolism, and a depletion of resources because the body is functioning at this high level to try to, in theory, fight off this infection or injury. So you're going to see a temperature below 36 degrees Celsius or above 38 degrees Celsius, so hypo or hypothermia. Um, you'll see a heart rate above 90, um, PaCO2 below 32, and a respiratory rate over 20, and white blood cells below 4,000 or above 12,000, with at least 12% or 10% bands, excuse me. So these systemic manifestations are resulting from the mediators of inflammation that are causing fluid shift, hypoxemia, and edema. So things you'll see in the brain, you'll see fever, fatigue, malaise, appetite, depression, sleepiness, and shivering. In the bone marrow, like we talked about, we'll probably have increased white blood cells with bands. In the musculoskeletal system, there's going to be catabolism to provide um, amino acids to kind of fight this off. So you'll have aches and pains, myalgias, fatigue, things like that. In the liver, the CRP or C-reactive protein is an inflammatory marker which moderates the inflammation response. So that will be elevated and you'll see that. Um, and it'll also, it can be a prodromal of a worsening condition. So distributive shock is something that can result from this. So it's poor perfusion as a result of vessel incompetence. So there are a number of types of shock. You could have cardiogenic shock in which the heart is not functioning well as a pump hypovolemic shock in which there's a lack of volume from either bleeding, dehydration, other causes. Um, obstructive shock, um, the heart isn't able to pump blood through the body like it should. There's something blocking it. Um, distributive shock, we have a few types of this. We have anaphylactic, which is the allergic reaction that we've discussed. Septic shock, in which the patient has had a response to a bacterial endotoxin. And also neurogenic shock in which the patient has damage to neurons, so the sympathetic nervous system isn't providing vessels with vascular tone. So to have adequate perfusion, there are three really important factors. Um, the circulating volume, so that's the blood volume itself, the heart's ability to pump, and also the size of the vascular space, which is where we get distributive shock. When you have oversized vascular space due to this really per profuse and um, diffuse vasodilation, you're going to have a loss of vascular tone. So the, um, the amount of volume in circulation is inadequate due to the increased vascular space.
an adequacy of microcirculation. Um, let's see. In neurogenic, as we talked about, there is damage to nerves and massive vasodilation, but not necessarily increased permeability. In septic and anaphylactic shock, we're going to have massive vasodilation and increased capillary permeability. And as we know, in septic, that's because of that bacterial endotoxin. And anaphylactic shock, it's because of the mast cells that are degrading and releasing mediators, such as histamine, leukotrienes, kinins, prostaglandins, and other mediators. In distributive shock, as we discussed, which includes those other three categories, um, vasodilation is going to increase the size of the vascular system and mediators increase capillary permeability. So you're losing large volumes of fluid from vascular space into the tissues. So when we look at this, the first sign is hypotension. So we're looking at like things that are associated with microcirculation, so too, too small fluid. So you'll have edema, the hypotension, um, a lot of moisture in the lungs, which you can hear as crackles, also decreased urine output due to the retention of um, water and sodium, also fatigue and malaise. As it progresses into shock and a systemic infection or anaphylaxis, um, you'll have decreased systemic blood pressure. So the mean arterial pressure, if it's between 40 and 60, it's going to be critical hyperperfusion. And if it's the mean arterial pressure is below 40, it's minimal perfusion. Since patients aren't perfusing and tissues aren't getting oxygen, you're going to have a change from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism. So there will be decreased ATP production and the creation of byproducts such as lactic acid, oxygen-free radicals. And both of those are going to affect um, endothelial tissue by damaging it and also prolonging inflammation. So the compensatory phase is how the body is trying to maintain blood pressure and maintain perfusion and blood flow. So there are a few different mechanisms. The sympathetic nervous system will have a response, which increases heart rate and blood pressure. Um, the region, renin, aldosterone, angiotensin, not sure about the order, I think renin, angiotensin, aldosterone pathway is going to cause vasoconstriction, reabsorb water and sodium from the urine and thus decrease urine output. Um, antidiuretic hormone is going to be reabsorbing water and also cortisol will be increasing blood glucose to direct those resources at the immediate problem. So the net effects of these compensatory mechanisms would result in increased circulating volume of blood, increased venous return to the heart, and also increased CO and blood pressure. Cardiac output and blood pressure, excuse me. This then moves on to the progressive phase. So this occurs if you have a failure of the compensatory mechanism. So the body is trying to increase the blood pressure, increase um, circulating volume, increase cardiac output, and it fails. At this point, the patient needs aggressive intervention, including vasoconstricting medications and fluid resuscitation. If the imbalance of oxygen supply and demand continues to worsen, you'll see um, an increase in the cellular oxygen debt and a progressive progression, progression to the refractory shock state, where recovery is not possible. So the general goals of the treatment, we're hoping to, one, increase the volume of blood. So you'll see administration of volume replacement like colloids, crystalloids. Um, we'll also have vasoactive drugs to increase the blood pressure like epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Um, we'll be trying to decrease oxygen use by the body and also increase oxygen delivery. So we're going to decrease stimulation to the patient and administer oxygen, um, provide nutrition support so they have all of the components they need to fight this off. Also antibiotics if they're in septic shock and we have that bacterial endotoxin. 
And finally, cardiac support. So that could be things like preload, afterload, and um, affecting contractility. When someone goes into shock, it not only affects their circulatory system, um, it causes major damage to the body due to that lack of good perfusion and blood flow. So you could see acute renal failure, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and disseminated intravascular coagulation, also known as DIC. So luckily, we have lots of drugs for the inflammatory process. So we're going to start out by talking about the cyclooxygenase pathway, also known as COX. So this is the enzyme that converts arachidonic acid to leukotrienes, prostaglandins, and thromboxane A2, and it's found in pretty much all tissues. So arachidonic acid is a product of cell membrane metabolism, so when there's damage to cells, it will metabolize to arachidonic acid. Subsequently, arachidonic acid metabolizes either through the cyclooxygenase pathway or the lipooxygenase pathway. So in the cyclooxygenase pathway, we have an enzyme that converts arachidonic acid to prostaglandins and thromboxane A2. These prostaglandins are going to promote inflammation and contribute to a sens sensation of pain, and both of them will be immune mediators. In the lipooxygenase pathway, it produces leukotrienes. So remember that lipo-leuco. These leukotrienes are going to cause inflammation, bronchoconstriction, um, potential airway obstruction, and cell infiltration. So they're going to promote and prolong the inflammatory process. So we have two types of COX as we discussed. So we have COX-1, which is what we call the good COX. So it's found in all tissue and protects the gastric mucosa in the stomach specifically by increasing blood flow, reducing gastric secretion, and increasing the secretion of bicarbonate and cytoproductive mucus. So it's protecting the mucosal cells from the gastric acid. It also supports renal function, so COX-1 is going to promote vasodilation and renal blood flow. And finally, it promotes platelet aggregation, so really important functions in COX-1, which is why we love it. When you inhibit COX-1, it has a number of harmful effects, such as gastric erosion from the effect of that stomach acid and decreased gastric mucosa, um, renal impairment from the decreased blood flow and lack of vasodilation, and also bleeding since it um, promotes platelet aggregation. Because of this final um, platelet aggregation impact, um, COX-1 also has the beneficial effect, if you inhibit it, of preventing myocardial infarction or stroke also known as conditions where there is a clot. So the second COX, um, cyclooxygenase COX-2 pathway is the bad COX. We do not like it. So it functions at the site of injury. It's not present in all tissues. And it mediates inflammation, sensitizes pain receptors, um, promotes colon cancer, supports, it also supports renal function such as vasodilation. And in the brain, it mediates fever and pain. So it plays a lot of roles when you're um, experiencing inflammation. So when you inhibit COX-2, there are a number of beneficial effects. You'll have a decrease in pain, fever, inflammation, and also possible protection against colon cancer. The negative effects of this, um, you're going to promote renal failure and also promote embolic events such as a myocardial infarction by suppressing vasodilation. So we have a few types of cyclooxygenase inhibitors, both aspirin and NSAIDs, which are non-steroidal um, anti-inflammatory drugs. 
So these stop the production of prostaglandins, which is going to suppress inflammation, relieve pain, and reduce fever. So those are all really beneficial effects, but they do have side effects, including gastric ulceration, bleeding, and renal impairment. So starting off with aspirin, acetylsalicylic acid, also abbreviated as ASA. So this is a non-selective inhibitor of COX. So that means it impacts COX-1 and COX-2. It's also irreversible, so it binds permanently. And no, this does not mean that it has a permanent impact on the body. Um, the action of this binding depends on how quickly the tissue synthesizes more COX. So the tissue will replace the COX that were binded by aspirin. So it has a number of protective functions. Um, it suppresses inflammation, analgesia, which is pain. Um, it reduces fevers, suppresses platelets, and relieves dysmenorrhea, which are kind of those menstrual cramps. It also protects against colorectal cancer, Alzheimer's, stroke, and MI. Some important side effects that we should mention, um, GI bleeds, um, gastric ulcers, um, Ray's syndrome, and salicylism. So kind of starting at the beginning, so we'll have the GI impacts because it's decreasing that mucosal protection and um, allowing the proliferation of gastric acid. Um, this can also lead to bleeding from those ulcers if they um, reach the mesentery or the submucosal layer. Yep. Um, we also have Ray's syndrome. So this is actually an encephalopathy and fatty liver degeneration in children who have usually had a virus. The mortality rate is about 20 to 30% in affected children, so it's a really significant thing. The link between Ray's and aspirin was never completely established but suspected. Um, they were estimating that there were about more than there were more than 500 deaths per year related to this use of aspirin in children. But when the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a recommendation for teens and children, so up to age 18, to avoid aspirin, um, there was a dramatic reduction in deaths, which kind of indicates that connection. Um, the final side effect is salicylism, um, and there's a triad of tinnitus, headache, and swelling, sometimes dizziness. So that's kind of the aspirin toxicity. So non-aspirin NSAIDs, so those are those non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So these are going to be the first gen of NSAIDs. So they're, um, they do inhibit COX-1 and COX-2, so they are non-selective. However, they are reversible. So unlike aspirin, they're not going to bind for the entire life cycle of that cell. Um, so they're used for pain relief. So they're the first line treatment for rheumatoid and osteoarthritis. Um, there are some side effects, including bleeding, GI effects, and renal impairment, similarly to aspirin. However, there are some areas that they're very different from acetylsalicylic acid, also known as aspirin. There's an increased risk of thromboembolytic events since there's little to no suppression of platelet aggregation. Um, COX-2 is found in blood vessels, so inhibition causes vasoconstriction as well, which is going to increase blood pressure. But since we don't have that suppression of platelet aggregation, you're going to have increased blood pressure without the beneficial impacts of that. So that can really increase the risk of clotting. Um, it goes in PO forms. We have ibuprofen and naproxen are the two forms. And for IV or intramuscular, it's um, Keterolac, Keterolac and Toradol. So these are known to relieve surgical pain as effectively as opioids. So given all the gastric 
effects of the first generation NSAIDs, we then had the second generation NSAIDs. So these are selective. They only inhibit COX-2. So that's a difference between first gen NSAIDs and aspirin as well. So they're going to reduce pain, fever, and inflammation without the bleeding and GI risks of inhibition of COX-1. So the major side effect of this is that they are, um, it is still causing that vasoconstriction since that's a COX-2 effect. And so it's going to cause, once again, that hypertension with an increased risk of MI and thrombotic events since it doesn't have the benefit of platelet aggregation suppression. So really the benefit between second generation and first generation or aspirin is marginal, but you'll see them used in people with a history of GI bleeds. So really the only indicated um, the only indicated use is for people with a history of GI bleeds related to NSAID or aspirin use and minimal risk of cardiac events or clotting. So that's really important. So there used to be a few more drugs. Now there's only Celebrex, also known as Celecoxib. I don't know how to say that. Um, it's the only um, second gen COX-2 inhibitor available today. And once again, it's for those at low risk of thrombotic events with a with a history of GI disturbance from COX-1 inhibition. So next we have acetaminophen, which is known as Tylenol on the market. Um, it's the second most frequently ingested drug in the US, so we'll see this all the time. So it only acetaminophen only inhibits prostaglandin synthesis in the central nervous system, not the peripheral nervous system. So you are not going to have anti-inflammatory effects since that would be in localized tissue. It does, however, result in antipyretic and analgesic effects, so you would use this to decrease pain and decrease fevers. Um, so we don't have the anti-inflammatory effects. It inhibits the prostaglandin synthesis, like we said, in the central nervous system only. It also inhibits the metabolism of warfarin, so it does cause an increased risk of bleeding. And additionally, it's the leading cause of liver failure because it causes liver toxicity. So it's really important to educate patients who use alcohol to be cautious about use of acetaminophen. There are a couple antidotes if you had an overdose. Um, acetylcysteine and mucomist would convert acetaminophen in the body to a non-toxic form. So just talking a little bit more about its metabolism and how it's affected by alcohol. So in the liver, you usually have um, acetaminophen metabolized in a major pathway to a non-toxic metabolite. So that's going to be in like a person with a healthy liver who's not using alcohol and using acetaminophen at the recommended dose. If you had a patient with an unhealthy liver, excessive alcohol consumption or excessive acetaminophen use, um, that main pathway would be saturated. The liver would not be able to metabolize it in that way due to the volume of um, components. So the acetaminophen would then enter minor pathways, which have the byproduct of creating a toxic metabolite. So this minor pathway is the P450 pathway. So this is the use of this is also induced by alcohol. So if you're using alcohol, it's not going to go down the main major pathway that results in the non-toxic metabolite. It'll go down the P450 minor metabolite. So after you have the production of this toxic metabolite from the minor pathway, Glutathione is responsible for metabolizing that toxic metabolite into a non-toxic metabolite. However, it can be depleted by alcohol and acetaminophen. So if you're using alcohol and taking acetaminophen, it can become toxic to your liver because this glutathione is being depleted, leading to that toxic metabolite byproduct.
finally, we also have glucocorticoids. So glucocorticoids are made to mimic cortisol, which is a hormone in the body. They have a number of metabolic effects that are similar to the effects of cortisol. Shocking. So we have hyperglycemia. Um, they also suppress protein synthesis and break down fat with redistribution. So like we, we remember, it's um, freeing up all those raw materials for times of stress where you're going to need them in the blood. So we have hyperglycemia, suppression of protein synthesis, and increased fat breakdown. Glucocorticoids also have vascular effects by promoting vascular stability. So it's going to do this by increasing blood pressure and also increasing blood glucose during times of stress. Um, the glucocorticoids also affect water and electrolyte balance. So they're, they're going to cause sodium and fluid retention and also the loss of potassium and calcium. So the most commonly used drugs in this category are cortisone and prednisone. So they also have an anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressive actions. So they're going to be inhibiting the synthesis of mediators, including interleukin, tumor necrosis factor alpha, prostaglandins, and leukotrienes. They also suppress the infl infiltration of phagocytes, so they prevent the um, entering of neutrophils and macrophages into inflammatory areas. And finally, they suppress the proliferation of lymphocytes. So glucocorticoids are indicated for a number of conditions, including rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, inflammatory bowel disease, allergies, asthma, skin disorders, and also to prevent re rejection after transplants. They do, however, have a massive number of adverse effects, including adrenal insufficiency, osteoporosis, infections, glucose intolerance, myopathy, skin lesions, fluid imbalance, growth retardation, psychological disturbances, cataracts or glaucoma, peptic ulcers, and fat redistribution. So because there are so many side effects, there are a lot of things to consider with use of this. Um, to analyze this a little further, I'm going to discuss the negative feedback method of um, production of glucocorticoids by the adrenal cortex. So um, production of glucocorticoids in the body operates on a negative feedback loop. So it's going to be turned on by the hypothalamus. So we'll have either central nervous system stimuli or stress that kind of provide that input to the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus will then release corticotropin releasing factor, abbreviated as CRF. This prompts the pituitary gland to release um, ACTH, adrenal corticotropic hormone, I believe. So that's going to promote the synthesis and release of cortisol by, adrenal, by the adrenal cortex. So after the adrenal cortex produces these glucocorticoids, the hypothalamus will detect the um, this presence of glucocorticoids in the blood and then decrease production of corticotropin releasing factor. So it's a negative feedback loop and the body can manage this really well. However, if you have prolonged exogenous, so those are um, things like prednisone, if you have prolonged exogenous steroids, steroid use, the adrenal glands aren't getting that signal from the pituitary to both grow and produce cortisol since the hypothalamus isn't being activated at levels high enough in the blood to indicate levels are sufficient. So the medicine will effectively turn off the endogenous supply of cortisol by interrupting this negative feedback loop. 
So why is this a problem? Long term, this is going to, as we know, it suppresses the action of hypo the hypothalamus and the pituitary loses its ability to produce um, ACTH. And without ACTH, adrenal glands are not going to be producing cortisol and atrophying because it's a tropic hormone. So when you have adrenal atrophy, you're going to lose the ability to synthesize cortisol and other glucocorticoids on its own. So for this reason, it's really important to be careful about this and use um, particular considerations. So this adrenal suppression can be kind of minimized and managed if you're using alternate day dosing. So that allows the body to still produce a little bit of its own if possible. Um, also taking the taking the body off of this as soon as possible, so not using it for excessively long periods of time, and also tapering it. You don't want to drop it off really quickly. It can cause an adrenal crisis, which we'll talk about later, but you want to be monitoring for that endogenous control and the return of adrenal function when the dose is decreased after long-term use. So, there's this thing that can occur called adrenal insufficiency stress. So this is occurs when you have physiologic stress. So usually the adrenal glands are going to be releasing sufficient amounts to manage stress, but when they're atrophied, they're not going to be able to do that. They can't respond to that stress. So there will be low levels of glucocorticoids, which are going to promote, and they have a lot of um, functions. Without it, we're going to have capillary permeability, um, the suppression of vasoconstriction, increased fluid and electrolyte balance, so you'll see hypernatremia, hypokalemia, edema, and hypoglycemia, and that can lead to cardiovascular collapse. So for this reason, it is really, really important to try to avoid adrenal crises. So you are never going to stop glucocorticoid meds abruptly. So you are giving that um, hypothalamus adrenal pituitary feedback loop time to reestablish function. For this reason, patients must always have an extra supply because the consequences of this could be severe and you do not want to be caught without your medication. Um, it should, it's also important to make sure they're wearing ID bracelets so they're identified as being on this. So if they were in an emergency, um, physicians would be able to make sure they're continuing that glucocorticoid therapy. Also, as we know, the body is going to be producing more cortisol during times of um, illness and stress to kind of um, like free up those raw materials and promote cardiac function and all of those things. So when a patient's on long-term glucocorticoid therapy, they need to seek treatment immediately for illness and stress, especially if they're thinking it'll be a prolonged period of time so that they can hopefully respond the way that the body needs and you're not going to have that adrenal insufficiency. So generic names of um, these kind of steroid treatments, you're going to look for the own suffix. So cortisone and prednisone are our prototypes for this class, but we also have beta-methasone, um, dexamethasone, um, let's see, what else? Hydrocortisone, methylprednisolone, um, and triamcinolone. <laughs> 